Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Dana Levin, Richard Sykin, Sarah Vapp, and Jazz Winder Bolina. You will now hear Dana Levin provide introductions. Thank you so much for coming out here at 10.30 on Thursday. We really appreciate it. Um, my name is Dana Levin, and I'm um, a pseudo-moderator for Victoria. Uh, the name of this panel is Protean Acts, The Art of Reinvention. And what we wanted to talk about today was um, how do you reinvent your work? How do you stop writing the same poem over and over? Is it a problem to write the same poem? over and over. Um, some people probably have strong feelings about that, and some people are probably like, eh. Um, oh, I forgot to say, um, I teach at Maryville University. I was supposed to say that. In St. Louis. I want to share with you the questions that Victoria posed to us um, that we are going to attempt to answer in different ways, and then we're going to leave room for questions, for Q&A. Question one. Do you think about reinvention, consciously or not, related to your work? If so, how has thinking about reinvention helped you creatively? Or do you think about reinvention another way? Question two, do you think reinvention can be limiting? Why or why not? Do you think there's a pressure in our culture to make it new? Three, is there a particular moment, project, or poem where you were more conscious about reinvention than other times? If so, why? Four, are there any reflections in hindsight that you have on the process of reinvention that you can share? And then the last question is the weight of our historical moment and how it may be pressing upon us and you in terms of reevaluating the kind of work that you write, whether or not you feel you must respond to this historical moment, what happens if you do not have a gift for the political, um, and how do you participate in that. Um, the first person who's going to attempt to answer some of these questions is Jeswinder Bolina. Hello, um, I'm just Winder Bolina. I teach at the University of Miami um, in the MFA program there. I'm replacing Jericho Brown, who should be here, and I should be there, because I'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, but Jericho's there, so we can ask him about it later. Um, so I, I'm, um, it, it's a strange thing. I'm, I'm so much more curious to hear what they have to say, and I never feel like I have a lot to offer. But then when I think about the questions Victoria had for us, um, they, even when I got asked to be on the panel, they're, they're pretty central, I think, um, to my work and the way that I think about it. Um, but over the last couple of weeks, kind of mulling some of this over, I realized that I, I grew up listening to David Bowie, and um, reinvention, it was sort of the, the um, heart of the game with him. Um, on the other hand, I also grew up listening to people like Bruce Springsteen, where reinvention is not part of the game, or if it is, it's it's much more subtle or quiet. And so I think of poets, too, and, and I think of um, a poet that I got to work with as an undergrad, Dean Young, who, um, if there is a, a reinvention, it is a pretty subtle and career-long one. Um, 
I feel like Mary Ruth falls in that category. But, of course, then we look at their work and we see, I think, a lot of difference from one poem to the next. And so the question becomes, how do they, how do they generate that difference? And I, I, I don't think that it is necessarily um, that conscious. I think it ends up being... Um, it, for me, it's about obsessions, right? What I'm obsessed with, what sound I'm obsessed with. There, I know that in my first book, I got really fixated on the phrase, literally the part of a sentence, complete or incomplete, where the most interesting words were kind of next to each other. And consequently, that book has a lot of, of sort of disjunction to it. And, and if there are structures there, there there are a lot of holes in them um, because I was all, all I was interested in was I don't know for lack of a better term beautiful phrases. Um, in the second book, I started to get a lot more interested, and I don't think I was doing this deliberately. I and mean, I, I thought I wanted to do something very different from one book to the next. But when I started to think that way, I, it locked me up, and I got blocked for like six months or a year. I couldn't write anything because I was thinking I don't want to write like myself and. What do I do next? How do I make something up out of nothing? Um, but once I let that idea go, that deliberate idea of, oh, now I'm going to do Ziggy Stardust, you know, um, I started to just sort of write what I was obsessed with. And it changed. It changed from just the beautiful phrase um, to uh, the weird line break. Uh, I started to get really uh, obsessed with a complete sentence, but cutting it in such a way that the next line would seem like it came a little bit out of nowhere. Um, and I realized that I did that almost for the entire book. Like, that, that was the driving uh, principle behind what I was working on. And it, again, it wasn't deliberate. It just kind of what I got stuck on. Um, and now that I'm, I'm finishing, or kind of have finished my third manuscript, I, I realized that... Um, my obsessions have changed, and, and weirdly, they, it has become an obsession with the prepositional phrase, um, which Marjorie Perloff in an essay says is like a terrible thing to, to do. So my apologies to Marjorie, but I, I really like the prepositional phrase all of a sudden. So everything in the book is of something else or with something else. And I didn't realize I was doing that until the book was done, and I read through it, and I thought... Marjorie Perloff's going to be very, very angry with this book because it's all prepositional phrases and a lot of complete thoughts. Um, and the, the other thing that ended up happening um, throughout, I think, the arc of the three is that um, I've always been interested in, in touching on, at least, the, the, the political. And I, I don't mean, you know, the political in the, in the vague sense. I mean in the topical, sort of direct sense where... Um, I started my MFA program the, the week before 9-11, and so I feel like that, um, how could you write about anything else, you know? And so there was this sort of, but I didn't know how to do it. Um, and so the constant uh, through all of this has been trying to balance my fixation on craft-level things, like line breaks or phrases or prepositions or, or whatever it is, with um, a more consistent interest in balancing the personal with the political, being able to touch on the political at every turn. Um, so I think in this weird way that that last thing 
makes my work sound like my work because it always returns to the same idea. But um, but it's it's at the level of craft where if there is a reinvention or a, a real big gap from one piece to the next, it, it's almost exclusively born of um, the language itself and some obsession I'm having with something in the language less than it is um, any kind of deliberate or conscious choice. Um, and I suspect others have uh, different versions of that, but I'm going to hand it off. Can I ask you one question? Um, so a prepositional phrase like two of, within, that, um, those, they're all, those are all words of positioning. Um, and do you think that being obsessed with these, these little words of positioning are, are where the alignment is with writing about political or social issues? And maybe that's why, from a linguistic perspective, your mind was like, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, yeah, that actually is, um, it is, after all, the president of the United States, right? It, it's not the United States president. And so, yeah, there is a kind of positioning in even something as, you know, mundane and common as that phrase. Um, so if you're interested in that, you know, what, what, what do you do? You start to gameplay president of the United States versus resident of the United States, um, States, and then you, you can think of states of matter or, or conditions, uh, and then it becomes, well, you know, residents of the United something, right? Um, so, yeah, it is about maybe positioning and then contorting what ends up relative to what. So, in that sense, it's still connected to that very first thing, the, the, the interesting phrase, right? Juxtaposing um, things that don't go together. And my students get sick of me saying that probably, but I'm always saying that. I, I want words that don't belong together forced together in the poem. That sounds like America. <laughs> okay. I am going to stand up here because I want to be able to see all of you. I hope that's not like, why is she standing up and nobody else is? Good? Okay. <laughs> One of the things Victoria asked us to do was to also um, pick a poem um, to read that perhaps showcases reinvention. And, and, Sarah, and I, Sarah and I both have one, but Brian and Joss Winder don't, which we're sad about. Um, but I'm going to read a poem. Um, what I liked, um, or what I was interested in, in terms of um, what Joss Winder was saying, aside from prepositions, is how often he used the word obsession. And I think in terms of reinvention, you know, a kind of um, mystic truth would be, it takes care of itself. Um, if you worry too much about it, I think you can end up creating some poems that ultimately feel very forced. Though sometimes forcing yourself into new forms and new voices and new subject matter can yield something that feels authentic to you. Um, so following the obsession is perhaps the way that the authentic change will occur. So for me, um, in my most recent book, uh, Banana Palace, the thing, one of the things that I got really obsessed with was overheard speech, which was not something that had been part of my repertoire. Um, so, and, and particularly um, the speech of the dispossessed. Um, homeless people, while I was walking through cities, people that clearly seemed um, to be mentally disturbed, um, little blips of conversation that I would hear um, in an office space or, or in a park. So this poem is called En Route, 
It was the hardest poem to write for this book. I did not believe this was a successful poem or could be for a very long time because it was complete alien territory for me. It's in ten really short sections. And um, finally, I had to give it a narrative spine. So you just imagine one person from morning going through their day all the way until they go to sleep. Um, there's a mention of uh, Kume, which was where um, one of the Greek oracles lived, writing out her fortunes on oak leaves and throwing them out of the cave. Good luck. Go find it. En route. One day from morning to dream. Morning drizzle, chicken little. Man in self-argument crossing the street. You better wash your mouth out with soap. No, you better. Umbrellas, 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 umbrellas. Another man ventured into thickening air. Office hours. You changed your religious affiliation to food. Then bandages. Then orgiast Foxtrot, Wrenchin, Tandoori. D played Byline for 72 points. D played Canoodle for 96 points. D played Enablers for 65 points. Scrabble? Student head through the doorway. Did he think you'd be plotting against Carnage? Critique. Mandated interactions with chairs, your corporation of atoms that's forced mergers with air and food. Was it any wonder that extending a hand made tears, you said, tapping the stanza, don't they often accompany heart? Someone else's cake. She frowned off the sugared flour, asked if they used butter to beat the batter. Did it suffer from nuts or eggs or fruit? She dug her thumb into the bother. Sixth and Kume. Some aftermath camped atop a subway grate, some boxed and muttering, perpetually hungry and insane. You look like you want me, but you don't, she spat in disgust. Go make technology happy. Selfie. Lips pursed. Right index finger tipping the chin. The look of, um. Happy hour. A feeling in your body as if you were flinging up handfuls of coins. Your body rushing back into your arms. I don't know. I wanted it to be more, he eddied his fingers, punctuated stars. Going under. You cannot get ready, her vinyl purse. You cannot get ready for God. You cannot get ready, her stout legs, her Sunday-gloved grip on the hour. Shoes, black, patent, leather, low, pumps. Tapping, you cannot get ready. She dug into the tunneling train a wide berth. For blessing you and judging you how you weren't ready for God. Serenely deeming you lost. You watched her purse swing under the East River. A book before bed. Despite this expense, some epitaphs were resolutely nihilist. 
Into nothing, from nothing, how quickly we go. While non fui fui, non sum, non curo, I was not, I am not, I don't care, was so common that it was often abbreviated to simply NFFNSNC. TTFN, ta ta for now. Mon semblable, mon frere. Inexplicable clown wig lurching away with a hall swing of coats. Now, I have no idea if that is a successful poem, but I liked it, <laughs> and I liked working on it. And I think that's another uh, crucial component of reinvention is to have the confidence um, to just say, this obsessed me. I wanted to work on it. It's really different for me. I'm going to try and figure out how to do something with it. I'm going to show it to friends and see, you know, for a long time I would show this to people and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> I can't tell what's going on here. And they helped me. I thought, okay, I have to put this in a narrative thread. That's going to help a reader move through it. Um, people say to me, it's easier to take in reading it, uh, hearing it out loud than reading it on the page because you don't get the tonal changes. I don't know what to do about that. But I, I, put, it, I put it in my book. So I think the biggest inhibitor to reinvention is all of the psychological stuff that comes up about writing anyway. This is stupid. Nobody's going to understand it. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and, I mean, you know, what do you have to lose? <laughs> it's poetry. You might as well just move forward um, and see what you can create. And, you know, in terms of the press of Make It New, um, do you feel this? Do you feel like you're, you're constantly needing to do some new thing that you didn't do before? I'm curious. Do you, do you feel this pressure? Yeah. Um, I, think about, I think about the haiku masters where um, uh, success was not in reinvention, it was in variation. How well could you deploy um, the whole set of images that go with writing haiku about um, the fall? Could you present to us the moon in a new way that we haven't thought about before? Um, you know, could you deploy cherry blossoms in a haiku about spring in a way that makes us re-see the cherry blossom. And I love thinking about um, not reinvention, but variations in eternal tropes and offering them up in some way that where the world comes afresh somehow. Because I think make it new makes us think, we just got to pluck something out of the air, just like, you know, come to me, new thing. Um, not, we're not all blessed with that moment. So very few of us are. Um, so make it new for you. Um, one of my mentors is Louise Glick, and she told me that when she starts writing again, because she goes through long silences, the first thing she asks herself is, what do I never do on the page? And she gives herself very teeny linguistic assignments. Wow, I never use questions, she said, in about Vita Nova. So every poem I write has to have a question in it. Um, and a repetition, because I never use repetitions. Or in the book of Verano, she was like, I never really have worked with the fragment. I'm now going to give myself an assignment to work with fragments. The teeniest, teeniest, teeniest linguistic or formal assignment. So if you are feeling stuck, 
um, sometimes giving yourself these kinds of teeny, teeny um, structural assignments may help you get somewhere new. I'm going to hand it over to Brian Tier, but I hope ultimately we come back around to this idea of the press of the historical moment. It's a real honor to be here with all of you and with all of you. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I am Brian Tier, as Dana said, and I'm, I teach at Temple University. That's what I'm supposed to say, right? I'm done with what I'm supposed to say. Um, I wanted to uh, begin by admitting that I'm actually not a natural writer. I did not, I'm not one of those people that I read about who spent their childhood scribbling in notebooks and, you know, illustrating their poems and giving chapbooks to their mom for Mother's Day. Um, though I love that idea. Um, I was not one of those people. Um, I really started writing in the context of college, of college, um, after I dropped out of high school, and I really started writing in the context of a workshop. I never really wrote outside of the educational um, context, which I think is actually really important for my sense of this question of how one changes. Um, I experienced education both as a great privilege and as a great um, pressure to conform, and I experienced creative writing education the same way, both as a side of great privilege and access to poetry, which I'd never really had access to before, but also as a great um, pressure to conform to the aesthetics of the particular school I went to, um, which were fairly conservative even by the standards of the 90s, i.e. rhyme and meter and traditional forms. I had been um, most immediately an activist in terms of gender rights and sexuality in Alabama, which is, tells you something about my character. Um, and so I wasn't particularly interested in sonnets, to be honest, um, or rhyme or meter. Um, I was interested in content. But the education I had was resolutely against political content in writing and completely obsessed with form. And so I really was a very obedient student. I felt very lucky to be in a context of education. Um, so I repressed a lot of that content for a long time. I did write an awful lot about sex, was my way of being like, well, I still am a homo, so, and that's political, so I at least can write about blowjobs, right? Um, but I didn't write about over politics. I focused on form, um, because that's what my education told me to do. Um, and I also focused on perfecting form, because that, again, was the obsession in my education, was like, what is the right lyric closure? What is the right, what is your line? What is all, and I'm not saying this is irrelevant. I'm just saying this is what I focused on instead of other things. Um, and for me, what the problem with that for me as a writer, is that I am someone who, like, the moment I am willful, you can tell. The moment I am willing a poem to do something, it sucks, and everyone knows it. Um, and so I cannot will change, um, and I cannot will obedience either. Um, they just look fake. 
Um, to me, what I began to learn during my education was that the spontaneous obedience to a constraint could work for me. That if it just happened, the moons aligned, and like I was actually in a sonnet-ish space, I could do it. If I had a sonnety idea, um, I could somehow fill up that form. But if I just wanted to write a sonnet or someone told me to do it, it would not happen. And so I became really interested in listening to the spontaneous pressure rather than the willed pressure. The spontaneous, what I'm going to, because I'm going to introduce Darwin a little later on, the spontaneous mutation. Um, and the thing inside of a formal impulse that might lead me a little bit astray, um, but actually is a kind of change, a kind of music that I could listen to and could sort of fulfill. Um, what I became really aware of as I started writing books is um, my favorite poets are metaphysical. I was raised deeply religious. Um, and so poets like Whitman, like Dickinson, like Carl Phillips, like Louise Glick, um, they're very metaphysical writers. Even if, like Glick, they're basically atheists, um, there's still this kind of what I think of as uh, a ritual of form. Um, the way in which in Buddhist meditation you sit in the same posture every time, but something different might happen. Um, toward your attitude toward language or toward your mind. It's how I think of lyric form. Dickinson wrote the same poem, form, a thousand times. But something different happened each time she sat down to fill out that form. And so at the same time that I was resisting a kind of obedience, I also saw that a kind of ritualized practice and a ritualized attention was something that could lead a poet to new kinds of insight, even if they're filling out the same kinds of forms. Um, I also figured out, while thinking about Jean Valentine, another poet who's like that for me and very important. And these are some of my touchstone poets. Hopkins, as wild as he is, basically every poem's like, guess what? Jesus is out there. Um, and he's so pretty. <laughs> That's the message of a lot of the poems. Um, but we get there through various wild kinds of um, calisthenics of, of rhythm and ear, um, which again are pretty similar from poem to poem, though for me ravishing and ultimately seductive. So what I found out is that I'm actually not that kind of poet, even if I'm a metaphysical writer and those are the people who I really feel are my peeps. It's actually not how I work. Um, I might work that way for like a little bit, but then there's something that happens that starts a new book. Um, and I'm not a project-based writer. Again, projects are willful, and I, which I'm not insulting you willful writers out there. There's plenty of Tauruses out there who get shit done. I am not one of them. Um, so I can't will a project or a book into existence, but I can follow the mutation or the adaptation into a new sort of formal landscape. So Darwin has this idea of descent with modification, that each successive generation, and here I'm sort of positing an analogy between books and generations of a species, um, that there's a crucial, sometimes adapted adaptation that happens in response to environmental pressure. And that's for me where history and experience come in. 
um, that I feel like all of my changes between books have a lot to do with the fact that the content of each book in some ways is always about the relationship between spirit and matter. It's like, I think that's my primary obsession. It's what I'm always going to write about, I think, because it's a mystery that none of us have figured out, really. If you have, get back to me. Um, so I probably I'll return to that eternally, if I'm lucky. Um, but um, the form, for whatever reason, always changes because the actual story or narrative that I'm telling, whether it's about incest and sex work or about losing a lover to AIDS or about our environmental crisis or about chronic illness, whatever those are, those external circumstances force a formal change. But it only forces a formal change if I allow myself to follow that impulse toward a different um, incarnation of the problem of spirit and matter. Does that make sense? So to me, this idea of reinvention doesn't quite sit right with me because reinvention to me sounds willful. I know it's not, I'm not slamming anyone here who's like, reinvention's my thing. Um, for me, it's really, it just is not the metaphor or the, the phrase I would work because it's not quite organic enough. It's not quite random enough. Um, so to me, this idea that the formal changes in one's work has everything to do with a response to our environment and a response to environmental pressures, both literally our ecological environment, but also our historical situation, our personal narratives, our, our own bodies, um, that I think form follows from those pressures. And that if we're sensitive listeners, we'll follow those spontaneous changes that happen in our practice as we go along. I think one of the things, um, that's the end of my spiel. I think the thing that I'm most interested in, um, and I, I wonder if people could maybe speak to this or if you guys are curious about it. I'm a big fan of writers whose work, you might, this might not surprise anyone, um, whose work changes a lot over time. I'm interested in that. Like Brenda Hillman, for instance, is a writer whose work um, has great formal range and change from period to period. But I also remember seeing Brenda talk at one point and saying, like, my first two books I had a certain amount of readers, and then I wrote these other two books, and I kind of lost a lot of those people, but then gained new people, and then I changed again. And so I'm really curious, actually, about, um, about readership and change. Like, I think you asked that question of, like, why not follow it? And I'm like, well, I think one of the inhibiting things is, like, well, if I do this weird thing, no one will read me. And so I wonder if that sometimes, like, I totally have decided not to give a shit about that question. But I also wonder sometimes what, what actual effects are, yeah. there are after that. I, I actually, that's so interesting to me. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but, you know, here we are in this massive historical moment where so many things are changing. And for myself, it's like my biggest impulse is I want to write poems about envy. I want to write poems about um, wrath. I don't want to be addressing it directly. For, and I'm afraid. I feel like I should be going out there with my flag of, you know, protest and saying everything that's going on is upsetting to me. But it's just not how I'm oriented. Um, so for me, I have to find this kind of swervy path, um, which has to do with ego destruction, um, which we could use. <laughs> um, but 
I don't know if anybody's going to want to read those poems because they don't have words in them like protest or I this or whatever. Um, so whenever you are ready to start doing something different, you do risk um, both alienation of the other and invitation to the other. You, 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 you just you don't know what's going to happen. And in terms of Brenda Hillman, I read this interview with her in 1997 where she went on about um, um, this idea that progress wasn't vertical but horizontal. And if you had a conception of progress that was horizontal, what would that mean for your writing? Well, it would mean that you would include more and more and more and more and more. And I have found that interview a touchstone for um, looking at the changes in her work um, because I feel like it, it, is, it, is, um, it is driven by that philosophy of, of horizontal progress, just including more and more and more. So just like asking you about, like, do, do prepositions, which are words of, of position, somehow lead you to a new way of speaking about our socio-political moment, you can see that there's a connection between um, an idea or a, or a philosophy, and the language comes to you and will offer you solutions inside of its own structure that will let you talk about the new thing. At least that's what I think. Um, thank you, Jasmine Dart. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Brian. I'm Sarah Vapp. Can you hear me? Is this on? Okay. Um, I'm Sarah Vapp, and um, I teach at Drew University MFA program. Um, I'm also at University of Southern California. Um, I um, just I think by virtue of coming at the end, I feel like I'm going to touch on a lot of the, the things that other people have said. I'm not sure what I'm going to say yet. Um, but um, I, I feel like I should start by describing um, this is a, a perfect thing for me to think about because um, I'm in the middle of a project that I've been working on for years that is completely breaking my brain. Um, it has been... Um, uh, so I would start by saying, my, I, I feel like Jasmine was talking about beginning with a, a prepositional phrase or thinking in terms of a, a word or thinking on a poem level. And I feel like over time, um, across my books, I have moved from thinking um, on a word level to thinking on a line level, thinking at a poem level. And now I, I feel like I think at a book level, um, but maybe not even that. Um, recently... Um, uh, at Drew, Ann Waldman came to visit, and she started talking about a 20-year project. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm working at a 20-year project level on this. I'm not really sure. And I actually, so this book that I'm working on, um, it was supposed to be published um, two years ago. It, it had a set date. It was going to come out two years ago, this Feb, you know, in February. And I asked for another year because I need, I needed to like re-enter it. I, um, what I had thought was done, I, I could no, it was no longer exactly what I wanted to say. It didn't represent. The world had changed too much, um, and my life had changed too much, and, and I had to re-enter the book. And then I asked for another year, and you know, so I keep pushing this book off by a year and re-entering it. And now when I try to describe it, I say, I think it's a double book. Um, and I, or I think that they're two different books and they're co-translating each other. Or I think that, you know, like, so I have re-entered the book so much that I had ended up writing a second piece, um, a, a second book that is, um, 
that I can't actually extricate from the first book. And so I want to read you just a little bit. Um, well, I'll say a couple of other things. Um, I really connect to um, what Brian was saying in terms of not having a choice about this. I have never felt like I had much of a choice about what I was writing, but I have felt extremely susceptible um, to uh, the world. And when I was thinking about this panel, I kept thinking of this word susceptibility and sort of my, my sense of not necessarily having a choice about what I was writing about through my life. And, um, and so Brian's thoughts about adaptation and mutation seem right in line with, with how I've experienced writing or how I've experienced um, the effect of time across my writing. Um, and so one of the things that happened this manuscript, I'm going to read something to you from it in a second to um, explain a little bit about what I'm talking about. But um, it... When I first started writing it, it, I would sit down, basically I was trying to write a poem about winter, and I had two very young kids. And um, and so every few seconds, as soon as you would sit down, as soon as I sat down, I would be interrupted. And, um, and so in, instead of becoming like really, um, like frustrated isn't the right word, it's like such a deep frustration, you know, to every few seconds across years, to be interrupted by by very young children. (laughs) Um, So instead of sort of like, uh, you know, your sense of self does break. Your uh, sense of a single selfhood does, it becomes disintegrated across children. Um, It becomes disintegrated across years. And so I felt this sort of um, center of myself dissolving across a communal identity as I was writing it. And so what had been, you know, in my 20s, writing books that were um, very much trying to figure out what that central selfhood of mine was, um, figuring out um, original family relationships, uh, figuring out my um, set of values about how I wanted to move through the world as a human being. Um, I've reached a point in this new book where I couldn't, if this selfhood that I just figured, I just spent 30 years figuring out is dissolving. So what am I writing from right now and how do I move forward from that place? Plus, I only have 13 seconds to think about it. And, <laughs> and then I have to change a diaper and then I have to breastfeed someone. And, then, and so um, this was actually just a really, really painful years in terms of my brain, right? Like um, I somebody who loved... Um, thinking, loved writing, loved reading, and then this was just, it wasn't just um, interrupted, it was evaporated, really. It just became something else across these years. And um, and so the other things that happen is your body is, you know, your body has other bodies in it. You, you have people attached to your body. Your brain is interrupted every few seconds. Um, your immune system is different than it was before. Like, literally, like, my microbiome changed. Um, things were entering my um, my psyche, my physical space, my brain. Like, it, it was just a... I was, I was a species transforming across these years. I was billions of species transforming. And, um, and then, <clears throat> sort of simultaneously, the internet became... <clears throat> Was, you know, became so much more present in the way that uh, social media appeared. So I felt like I was um, not only being, um, I was not only deeply susceptible, like on a, a, what a human being is, like on a human being level, but on a social level as well. This So um, extreme susceptibility to the world has sort of informed years of deep um, um, 
I don't know if reinvention, because it's still being, I, I don't know if I'm inventing anything. I feel like I'm just responding across this <coughs> manuscript. But um, so here's what I thought three years ago um, was a poem, and I thought it was a poem from this manuscript. Um, and so I'm cataloging the reasons that my kids have cried, because they cry every few seconds, right? And, uh, you know, it's for, you give them the wrong shape pasta. You, who knows? They're going to they're gonna scream. <clears throat> and this is in that series of poems. There are reasons to cry, reasons to break, to be bowled over with the loss, such as the mind, such as the grow, such as... We are living in the forest as it dies. We watch the trucks leave our valley each day, filled with the bodies of trees, harrowing relentless across earth, and other bodies around us, touching one another increasingly, steadily to know bodies of all our knowing and then our forgetting, our sons, each other. Have we loved across the inconceivable time and distance, Across bodies, we are told we cannot know. <clears throat> so a second later, I was interrupted. And instead of becoming deeply frustrated, I would just put the interruption into my book. <clears throat> Mama, poop is coming out of my butt. <laughs> okay, honey, does that make you real happy? Yes. <clears throat> So these kinds of moments, instead of excluding them, instead of um, not sort of chronicling my breaking brain, um, I I just started to include them in the manuscript. And then I started calling them to make myself feel better aphorisms. This has to be a kind of wisdom, right? Like my, and and why don't we have aphorisms from women across history? It's because they were taking care of their fucking kids. (laughs) And they were interrupted every 13 seconds for 20 years. And so um, I started to sort of like embrace, <laughs> embrace these, um, these moments and put them in the manuscript. And, and so I just made myself more susceptible, and I made my book susceptible. Um, and then, the, you know, as years went by, so I've been working across years on this, and then I had another kid. So my book is accepted for publication. And then we had another kid, and I was like, I can't, I can't, you can't publish my book. I've had another kid. And this starts all over again, and the world has changed. And so I kept, uh, I, I couldn't, I can't stop in some sense. And so this is when I, after pu- putting the book off um, publication twice for two years, um, this is the kind of thing that I have put in the new piece. Okay. You'll probably see my susceptibility to, like, internet and to politics and to the world even more deeply in this one. And these are extremely um, short. I wish I could show you, but they're just, some of them are just a few lines long, and they actually look like aphorisms more than the previous ones. Drones are probably killing someone right now. Drones are probably killing someone right now. High-intensity high intensity sonar training exercises are causing blood to pour from the weight. Sorry. High-intensity sonar training exercises are causing blood to pour from the ears of whales right now. Wi-Fi clouds are surrounding me right now as badly as I could I. Who is innocent and for how long? 
Do I love going beyond what I know? Do I love looking closely at something I don't understand until it has changed me? Do I love looking closely at something invisible until it has changed me? Lorca said, but hurry, let's entwine ourselves as one, our mouth broken, our soul bitten by love, so time discovers us safely destroyed. Fanny Howe said, my brain is a baby. The molecular holiness of, and invisibility of, and divisibility of, the, the understoodness of, drones are probably killing someone right now. It sounds like they are killing someone right now. They're killing someone for protection, safely destroyed and speaking to each other about the bright and otherworldly, garbage all around the world now flipping or spinning. Writing brings no relief. We are drinking glasses of water with blood in it and looking at each other as if to say, what should we do? Drones are probably killing someone right now. Drones are probably killing someone right now. Liquid amongst the babies, the part is sweetest. Amongst the cogs or at the cogs themselves, a part is sweetest. Oh, him, him and all of his little. When the first baby arrived, listen to me. When the first baby arrived, listen to me. He was so little that I began to have enemies. Reversed, flipped back the violence, rounded and ample, fell to my knees to pray, to rip off the balls with my teeth. So, <clears throat> so this is um, all part of the same um, project and um, it might be coming out next spring. <laughs> I have no idea, you know, there, I have the most generous, um, beautiful press in the world I'm working with. Um, and so, um, so I, I just wanted to offer the idea of susceptibility as, uh, versus a sort of willful reinvention as having been my um, experience across books and, um, and across um, the uh, sort of aesthetics of, of what, changes in my work have looked like. Thank you. So you have susceptibility and you have mutation and you have radical adaptation and I don't know, I like those words feel comfortable to me as opposed to reinvention which feels completely full of pressure. I just wanted to um, ask my fellow panelists just very briefly and then we'll take your questions really briefly like give me a sentence. Do you think there is a should involved in writing poetry at this moment. Do you think that there are topics that we should be addressing? Or um, do we have tolerance to still read poems about trees? Do we have tolerance to still read poems about a sunset? Is it bad to write those poems? How are, how are you guys feeling about this, John Quinder? Oh. Um, Sarah, my, my spouse and I are thinking about starting a family <laughs> to make a phone call after this. Um, <laughs> but the poem, the, the poems are so good. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be okay. Um, I, I think if there's a should right now, it is a, a should of inclusion. Um, yeah, trees, sunsets, but also everything else uh, and everybody else because there are a lot of bodies being ignored and threatened uh, and harmed 
Um, so, yeah, that's the thing compelling me is I, I see sunsets too, and I, and I like thinking about them, but uh, somewhere a drone is probably killing somebody. And so that's my, my should is included all if I, if I can. Yeah, I um, I read a really great blog post the other day about self-care in the context of trauma and activism. And one of the things that the writer, um, someone from L.A., and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. She was really great, um, said was that, okay, just because all this is going on doesn't we actually have to attend to the things that we love. And that's also a form of resistance and self-care. And so, to me, trees like the, and the lived environment and the people I love and queer resistance, etc., and intersectionality with people of color and trans politics, like all of those things to me are part of the world that I love and part of the resistance. Um, but they're not... I mean, I think the thing that you know, the susceptibility idea is like the idea that the sunset or the tree was not separate from the political realm was one of the fictions that we were told about literature that isn't true. Um, like my education, that was like you can pay attention to the sonnet and to the line break, but you can't pay attention to rape, for instance, um, which is just a falsehood and a way of maintaining power. Um, and so I think actually one of the advantages of this moment is that maybe we'll stop lying to ourselves about what literature is and what literature can contain. And I think that strategy of, of yeah, it should be the whole world. You know, Wittgenstein says the world is everything that is the case. Um, but why hasn't literature been that? And I ask that all the time. Why has literature not done that work of being everything that is the case? And so to me, that's what I want. Um, and that's what I hope my students do. I hope it's what you tell yourselves to do. But there's no should about how you do that. That's to me that I don't know how you do that. You're your own weird creature. Um, and so the fact that all of you could be doing that in your own weird creaturely ways is what's, I think, so powerful. Yeah, I agree. I don't think a sunset is any different than um, um, politics and then um, thinking about social justice necessarily. Like, I think that, um, um, you know, one of the, um, we're going to lose winter, for example. That's why this, bo this book that I'm writing, is, it's obsessed with winter. This idea that as the world gets warmer, you know, we might just like we might lose snow. We might lose. At some point, there's going to be no winter, right? If this, if we head in this direction, and can I, can human beings even conceive of this idea or this phrase like the river is dying? What is that? My it's another thing that breaks my brain. Like there are things that are like we have not evolved enough to be able to understand, and I feel like that is often the work of poetry. That can be within human relationships. It can be. Um, social relationships, it can be um, about sunsets, it can be um, so I have no shoulds um, um, in my sort of belief system about poetry necessarily, other than just um, uh, you know, what I always offer is just be as 
Like, what is your risk? What it, you know, have your courage and take your risk. Like, if you're going to bother sitting down to write, um, you know, make it worth your time. Make it worth, you know, that would be my, so that's sort of the only should I ever offer in terms of poetry is take your risk and then, and then, or the, the other uh, piece that um, has always been helpful for me when I'm thinking um, about my own projects is sort of identify like who on earth am I it, I love that you thinking about like having an audience I've never considered having an audience I sort of assume that we all don't have audiences <laughs> but uh, it was just very freeing and wonderful actually but instead of picturing an audience I've always pictured like who is my poem going to who's my book poem my book going to offend great now how do I offend them even more and so that has been sort of like really helpful to me like thinking like who do who do I not who am I not writing for, and how can I even more not write for them? Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Does anybody have any questions for the group or for anybody up here or about reinvention? Um, if you guys couldn't hear that, the, the question is about you want to respond to the um, pain and injustice that is happening all around you, but you also realize that you might be appropriating the experiences or the pain of others that don't belong to you. So how do you address that? Uh, I, this is actually related to what uh, Sarah said. Um, I, in, in a certain sense, I mean, I, I tend to... I think of it in terms of language. Instead of thinking about like who I'm writing to and who I'm going to anger and I'm going to write to that person, I actually start to think, and this might be will help with the other question too, um, there's my language, right? There are the words that I always go back to. There's no way that I can kind of break free of that. Um, I've read a lot of Wittgenstein too, right? You'd like to kick out the ladder of language, but you, you can't. Um, what I do become... Uh, conscious or cognizant of is um, then other people's language. You know, what is person X going to be able to say? What do they say that I would never say? Um, and one way that I get around um, or, or kind of rework my own work, and it's, it's rarely deliberate, is that I, I try to put in the words that I'm not accustomed to using. Um, and from that, a kind of, I hope, a kind of authenticity is born that I can't appropriate an entire experience, but I can start to think in a language that I don't ordinarily think in. I can use a word that I would never use in my day-to-day -day life. And if I start to use enough of those, it's uh, fulfilling for me as a poet, just in the act of writing, because it's entertaining to me. I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, it becomes language gameplay. Um, but then the consequence of that is I, I hope that I end up quite a bit further uh, from my own limited self. You know, it, um, when we say Shakespeare is the, the greatest uh, writer in English history, his vocabulary was larger than anybody else before or after, and they've done word counts, and he's got twice or three or four times as many words, and, and he made up, you know, a third of them or something like that. Um, and so... And that's one way around it, is rather than thinking, I'm going to write somebody else's experience, 
how do I be respectful of the language they would use? How do I incorporate it into my work um, just at that, at that really fundamental level? I also think it's important to try and to be ready for critique. Um, I'm moving to St. Louis. I'm writing a poem about St. Louis. I've never lived anywhere in my whole life that has a living, breathing history of segregation. I feel like I must contend with what I experience in St. Louis. I'm terrified to write about it. Um, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to show it to people. And they're going to say, whoa, don't even. You know, or they're going to say, interesting, but what if? Um, so I think it's important to try, but I think you also have to be ready to get critiques you might not be looking for, ready to receive. Um, but I think it's important to try, because I think poetry is an, is an act of empathy. I mean, when you write towards something, you are trying to have an empathic relationship with it. We need to have more empathic relationships. Um, were you going to say something about that, Brian? Yeah, I was going to say a couple of things. One is that um, one of the premises of a more intersectional politics is that, you know, the crisis isn't... You look at what your story might and your struggle might have in common with others while maintaining the boundary between your story and other people's stories and respecting those boundaries so that you don't mistake your own struggle for someone else's. You recognize when and where they have common interests, but also recognize the limit of your, um, of your own interests. And so I think that is important ethical work and work of the conscience to do. I think it's also, I mean, in doing that work, you risk making mistakes, which I think one has, does have to do in terms of making um, strides in terms of political struggle. But I also think there are whole strains of poetics, let's say like documentary poetics, poems like Muriel Rukeyser's Book of the Dead, um, that are documentary poems that use like research and more journalistic tools to contextualize other people's struggles, i.e. white working class, um, black laborers in the context of, of a historical moment. And so there are other, there are also other modes. I think it's one of the troubles with the lyric or lyric narrative mode is that the eye is always at the center or tends to be at the center of that. So one solution to not putting the eye at this is don't put the eye at the center of the poem. And so what do you, and that again is another formal challenge. Okay, well then what, if I've never done that, how do I do that? Is that then more like fiction? Like I use a narrative? You know, like I think in these challenges are really good um, in terms of having to deal with the ethics of telling a, a story that might not be only your own. And how do you do that? Um, I think is a really powerful question. Again, documentary poetics, I think. They're, like Mark Nowak is another writer who's done that kind of work. Um, they use these documentary frameworks to try to... Um, not make it just a story about the eye um, and to open up their aesthetic to do other work. That's... I would just add that I think the, you know, the world is always trying to trick us out of thinking that our problems are... like that Brian's problems shouldn't matter to me or that my problems shouldn't matter to him. And 
like, I think the, it's to the benefit of Donald Trump that we think that we can't, you know, empathize with each other and to um, um, connect with the things that are hurting other people. So, yeah. Yeah. I just read, I'm a big fan of Winnicott, the British psychoanalyst, and he's a big, because he's a big fan of aggression um, and thinks a lot about aggression. And he, I just read this really great article about mothers' hatred toward their children and that it's actually totally crucial to children's development that mothers actually show um, aggression or, or let their children know um, because hatred is like this really primal impulse in children. Aggression is really primal. And you can only learn to check it if you watch your mother check her own aggression toward you. Does that make sense? And he has this great phrase about sentimentality is useless for parenting. Um, it's useless for poetry. But I also... But that... No, that's actually what I keep thinking about, like, both in your comment, but also in um, the question about um, ethics is, like, you know... Part of it is like we need to be a little bit more ruthless with ourselves, like in our and our own investments, um, our, and be because what he says is it's impossible to take care of other people if you haven't taken care of your own hatred. Well, and yeah, and the domestic. I think the domestic. It starts in the domestic. I mean, my own personal creed is all of the collective stuff is in, it's right in here. It starts in here. You learn it in here, and then it it just goes outward. So I think you're right, Rachel, in terms of the ways in which we say, oh, well, that's just about mothers, or that's just about kids, or that's just about the relationship you had with your daddy or whatever, and obviously it's not about these other things. Like making the connection and, you know, for yourself, and then if, if anybody reads your work in terms of, no, there is a through line from the moment you're born all the way into being a citizen that affects the way that you engage the world, that affects the way that your government treats you. I mean, I'm living a father nightmare right now. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, but, you know, there's ways where Trump, I just feel like I'm five years old hiding under a chair again because I had a raging father. And, and this is... You may not agree with me, but maybe you do. I mean, that's who's sitting in the Oval Office. And I, I mean, so I just want to reflect back to you that it's all connected, all of it. And if anything comes out of this uh, panel today, um, I think we go back to Brenda Hillman's idea of just including more and more and more and more. And to not imagine that progress means... Um, becoming narrower and narrower, narrower and shapelier and shapelier, and that to get messy um, in in your inclusivity as you're trying to work it out seems like a pretty important um, component to finding new ways of being yourself on the page. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. Please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.